make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Praise God. Just make uh, one correction from the bulletin. This Saturday, the ESL program starts at uh, 10 o'clock, not 10.30. It's 10.30 Newfoundland, but uh, 10 o'clock here in Alberta. We're starting a new series on this first Sunday of the new year, focusing on the blessing. And uh, we're looking at one of the most interesting characters in the Bible, a man named Jacob. And so we're going to be spending about six episodes, we'll have about six episodes on his life, three now, and then when it's my turn again, three later after that. This morning we're in Genesis chapter 25. Father, we thank you so much for the fact that uh, we can experience the goodness that you have for us throughout our lives. And there's also times when it becomes very special and meaningful and specific to certain places, certain events, and, and even with certain people. And church is certainly like that, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to be here today and to experience your goodness through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So let's start at the beginning. When God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And 93 million miles from one of those lights, God said, let there be life. And the oceans teemed with living creatures and birds flew across the expanse of the skies. And mountain goats climbed up steep ledges to get a better look. And then God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. And God saw all that he'd made, and it was very good. But on another day in paradise, Adam and Eve believed a lie and disobeyed God. And the universe groaned. For all creation was cur cursed, and disobedience multiplied. Until the days of Noah when it says that the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Just imagine that. I think we can because that's kind of summing up some of the things happening in our generation. Well, that was the days of Noah. But even then, God was up to something, something good. He was about to introduce the antidote to the curse. And his test subject was named Abram. And God put Abram in isolation so he could build an immunity to the epidemic of evil and idolatry. And the, the verses, verses were just read. 
how all the peoples on the earth would be blessed through Abraham and his descendants. The antidote to the curse was the blessing. And 4,000 years later, we still talk about it. God bless and have a nice day. May God bless you. God bless us, everyone. But what does that mean? It's almost like saying good luck, except it sounds more spiritual. Is it anything like, may the force be with you? While we use the word blessing very casually, almost unconsciously in our conversations, we may not realize how powerful it really is. Because a blessing given can make us, or when withheld, can break us without ever knowing why. And to understand this power, we're going to be studying the account of a man who spent his whole life relentlessly searching for the blessing. He was Abraham's grandson, a man named Jacob, who eventually would be called Israel. But for now, Jacob was downstream from the blessing of God that he had poured out into Abraham's family. So it was coming his way, except for one thing. Jacob's older twin brother, Esau, the firstborn, was upstream. He was the prime beneficiary. Jacob would have to be content with the leftovers. He had the smaller portion. In this family, Esau was the one who had the birthright, which entitled him to the leadership of this family in the future. It gave him judicial authority, a double share of the inheritance, and he always got the bigger piece of pie and the best parking spot in the family's Camelot. So being born a few minutes later changed everything. That's why the twins jostled for pole position while still in the womb. In Genesis 25, beginning at verse 21, we read, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the answer was shocking. Verse 23, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. So this was the beginning of something historically significant. Two great nations. But the older would not remain superior. The younger brother would become greater. And this went against every cultural tradition that defines society. But of course we know God has a habit of doing things differently. That's the specialty of the house. It says in verse 24, When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first, came out, the first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So Jacob came out with his hand still on his brother's heel, which was a personal foul 
unsportsmanlike conduct. Jacob was trying to hold him back so he wouldn't be the firstborn, but he failed. And that failure would come to define his whole life. That failure became his destiny. It's like the Olympics, you know, there's no inspiring motto about going for the silver. No. Everyone is there to go for the gold because second place means you lost. As Seinfeld says, you're the first of all the losers, even if ever so slightly, by one one thousandth of a second. No, when you're spending your whole life preparing for an event like that, you go for the gold. I saw a guy wearing a hat that said, world's greatest dad, second runner-up. Oh, he was so close. Maybe we're like Jacob. We want to be first. But we didn't quite make it. Because all of us have an Esau in our life. The guy who got the promotion we were hoping for. The guy with a better arm who got to play quarterback in high school, so we were second string. The team leader who got the credit for our hard work. The sister who was a favorite of her parents. Or what about Rick Steves who got the TV show about Europe that I didn't get? There's always an Esau in our life. And speaking of favorites, verse 27, the boys grew up, And Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. One thing is quite obvious when you study the families in the book of Genesis is that they were incredibly dysfunctional. They were a disaster. And those dysfunctions were passed down through the generations, especially favoritism. Abraham had a favorite son, Isaac. Isaac favored Esau. Rebecca Rebecca favored Jacob. And Jacob would later favor Joseph. Well, that's malpractice because favoritism is very toxic in any setting, especially in a family. It poisons all the relationships. It turns brother against brother, mother against daughter. Favoritism is not the same as the blessing. It's a counterfeit. In fact, favoritism is a curse, and it harms everyone, even the favorite. That's why James chapter 2, verse 9 says, If you show favoritism, you sin. Now, I have a favorite wife, but that's where it stops. I don't do it beyond, beyond there. I have three sons who I love equally, and there's absolutely no favorite there, I'll tell you that. But the Bible says this about God, Romans chapter 2, verse 11. God does not show favoritism. And it mentions the same thing in Acts 10, 34, and Ephesians 6, verse 9. Well, in Isaac's family, favoritism was the modus operandi. So their operating system had a malignant virus. Verse 28 says, Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob. And the interesting thing is that Isaac's favoritism was not based on his admiration of virtue or character. It was consumer-driven. It was a reward for the top chef. This was not unconditional love. 
Isaac was dominated by his appetite and his favorite son became his enabler. Skip the dishes. Did someone order pizza? So Esau the hunter was the star of the show and Jacob was just an extra. Although he did have a pretty good agent, Rebekah loved Jacob. And maybe that was kind of a consolation prize or maybe to correct the imbalance. A mother's heart always goes out to the child who is struggling with life. And of course, there was that prophecy. But even beyond that, I think Rebecca also saw something in Jacob that was missing in Esau. He had more of a spiritual dimension. Jacob was a shrewd appraiser who could appreciate what was most valuable in life, like the birthright. You see, there were two things that Jacob valued above all, the blessing and the birthright. And as a silver medalist, he wasn't entitled to either, unless he could make a deal. But how? Well, it really wasn't that difficult, because his brother Esau was impulsive and indulgent. He was a man controlled by instinct and immediacy. All that mattered to Esau was right here and right now. He didn't think that much about the future or about long-term consequences. And that would prove to be a fatal character flaw. And Jacob realized that he could exploit his brother's weakness. Verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. Esau, like his father, was dominated by his appetites. That's all that mattered. Verse 30, he said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And Jacob said, no soup for you. Come back one year. Next. Unless, unless I get something in return. Verse 31, Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. You see, Jacob may have had a proper value system, but his tactics were devious and deceptive. He was a manipulator, a schemer. He was always looking for a way to undermine his victim. His name even indicated that. Jacob was using Esau's weakness to his own advantage. Jacob replied in verse 31, First, sell me your birthright. Now what does that remind you of? Doesn't that sound like the snake who perpetuated the ultimate scam, convincing Eve to give up the title deed to paradise for some forbidden fruit? Oh, it tasted so good. But she didn't count the cost. And the aftertaste sent bitterness through her soul. Well, Satan was still in business and Jacob was his unwitting student. First, sell me your birthright. Well, that was outrageous. Esau couldn't believe it. Are you serious? You want me to give you my birthright for a lousy bowl of soup? What kind of a fool do you think I am? Are you insane? 
That's what he should have said. But Esau was caught in the moment. Verse 32, look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is my birthright to me? Wow, that's interesting. Esau said, I'm about to die. Are you kidding? Is it really that bad? Of course not. But when you're living without a context, you base everything on your present circumstances. And that's why you will always overreact. Something goes wrong and you panic. A flat tire, an unexpected bill, and there goes your sanctification. A word of criticism pulls you into the sinkhole of despair. Remember when you were dating and she broke up with you? You thought it was the end of the world. Why does the sun go on shining? Why do the birds still sing? You thought it was the end. Life is filled with troubles and disappointments. And that is precisely why we need to live in the context of God's sufficient grace, the promises of his word, and the victory that is ours in Christ. We are not orphans at the mercy of outrageous misfortune. We are the children of a God who is making all things work together for our good. Esau had no context. All he knew was that there was only one solution to his most immediate crisis. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is my birthright to me? Have you ever wondered what good are the post-dated promises of God's word? What about now? In this current economy, there are thriving businesses that exploit this very thing. You've heard the commercial, I have a structured settlement, but I need cash now. The sermon is brought to you by J.G. Wentworth. If we want it, then of course we need it. And if we need it, then we want it now. The only thing that matters is right now. The lyrics of one of Chris Christopherson's songs sums it up. I don't know what's right or wrong. I don't want to understand. Let the devil take tomorrow. Tonight, I need a friend. That's the creed of the now generation, desperately seeking temporary relief. F.B. Mayer writes this, Inheritors of vast spiritual estates fling it all away for one brief plunge in the pool of selfish and sensual indulgence. Let the devil take tomorrow. The only thing that matters is what I need right now. What good is my birthright to me, said Esau. But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And that was a legally binding transaction. This is, this is amazing. This is incredible because everyone assumed that Esau was the most skilled hunter in that family. But it turns out that Jacob was even more cunning in stalking his prey and setting the trap. 
Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left as if nothing had happened. The sun was still, still shining. The birds were still singing. It was not the end of the world. And Esau felt great. His stomach was full. All his problems were solved for now. He didn't even get acid indigestion. So the consequences of sin are seldom immediately apparent. As far as Esau was concerned, he hadn't lost anything. He was still his father's favorite. His bank balance was still twice as high as Jacob's. Besides, you know, it was just a verbal agreement. No documents were signed and witnessed. There was no official record of the transaction. It probably wouldn't hold up in a court of law. Except that in the land titles in eternity, the Lord, so Esau despised his birthright. In the eyes of heaven, major commodities had exchanged hands. Esau had lost controlling interest in the divine inheritance of thy kingdom come for a lousy bowl of soup. And I'll bet it wasn't even gluten-free. Now, that does not excuse Jacob's treachery. And we'll address that next time. But for now, Esau is the one who concerns us. What good is my birthright to me? 